Worship should be a time where your whole, your soul gets to soar. Um, We certainly have done that. Uh, It's good to do that, have hearts filled with wonder of who God is. Directions make all the difference. Where they take us. Classic would be the Donner Party, the 1800s, the American West, that uh, followed the directions of Lansford Hastings, who wrote about a shortcut to California. And they decided they would take it. Uh, I think it's Ken Burns does a marvelous unfolding of that story, noting each day that they delayed and stopped here, stayed a day here, another one there, and a week here, and how all those days would add up. But the truth was they followed the cutoff, a little booklet by Lansford's Hastings about this shortcut. It was a shortcut that Hastings himself had never taken. But he wrote about it. And they followed it. And it turned out, led them across a country that was no trail. Uh, They went across desert. They had to cut through pine trees, make their own trail, steep land. And in actuality, that shortcut turned out to be about 360 miles longer than the normal route to California, plus with all the hardships. And we know what happened that there in the Sierra Nevada mountains, one day from being over that pass, blizzard came in. And that's where the Donner Party would become infamous, uh, and many of them would, would die there. Uh, from that storm following those directions. Uh, Directions do make a difference. In Psalm 25, we're going to look at this this morning, Uh, we're going to look at a psalm that really gives some insight about direction. We're going to read it in its entirety. It's 22 verses, so stand with me as we read what David has to say. Beginning of verse 1, David says, Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed. Let not mine enemies triumph over me. Yea, let none that wait on thee be ashamed. Let them be ashamed which transgress without cause. Show me thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. Lead me in thy truth and teach me, for thou art the God of my salvation. On thee do I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, thy tender mercies and thy loving kindnesses, for they have been ever of old. Remember not the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to thy mercy, remember thou me for thy goodness' sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore will he teach sinners in the way. The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth unto such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon mine iniquity, for it is great. What man is he that feareth the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way that he shall choose. His soul shall dwell at ease, and his seed shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. And he'll show them his covenant. Mine eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. 
turn thee unto me and have mercy upon me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. O bring thou me out of my distresses. Look upon mine affliction and my pain. Forgive all my sins. Consider mine enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in thee. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait on thee. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Let's pray. Father, what a great psalm your servant David wrote here. A one that speaks so powerfully even today, so many years later. Uh, so much here, Lord, yet we're only going to touch on a few things. Uh, but let your truth just touch our hearts. Give us ears to hear. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, direction is very important, especially in, in, in life today. And this psalm is really picturing a, a difficult journey in life. And it tells us, gives us directions for seeking out God. Uh, psalm 25 is what we call an incomplete acrostic. Uh, each verse kind of begins with that Hebrew letter, the alphabet. doesn't show up in our English Bibles, but, but it does in the Hebrew. There's no obvious divisions in it. It's not an easy passage really to, to outline. So I'm just going to take one aspect and touch on a handful of verses from this psalm about directions in seeking out God and finding his instruction. And the first one we're going to see right away that David gives us is ask God to show us. Uh, we see that in verse 4. Where David says, show me thy ways, O Lord, teach me thy paths. Lead me in thy truth and teach me. Uh, you see, David tells us we just need to do the obvious, and that's ask. And that's what David does. Uh, David was always asking God to do something. Uh, he's always asked God, I want to dwell in your house forever. And he asked to have that. David would many times ask for mercy. And we see that many times, and uh, we see it here in verse 19, he'll ask God to deal with his enemies. Sometimes he'll seek out God and say, God, I need you to pull me out of trouble. Uh, David was always getting in trouble. Then he'll ask God to forgive his sins. We'll see that in many of his psalms. And then he'll ask God to make haste and come help him. And here we see David, he's asking for instructions. Lord, show me the way. You know, Jesus told his disciples, uh, the Gospel of Luke, he says, I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh, receiveth. Uh, so Jesus there teaches uh, us to come to him and ask, ask the Father. A and disciples would do that. Many times they would uh, often ask Jesus about certain things. Uh, one time when he was teaching a parable, when they got along with Jesus, they asked Jesus, what did that parable mean? And he had to explain it to them. They asked about how to live right. 
they would ask for insight on what happened when they could not cast out a demon-possessed boy. Why they failed. Uh, they'd come to Jesus and say, Jesus, would you teach us to pray? And he did. And when we look in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, we find that anyone who comes to Jesus seeking and asking for help, Jesus never turned them away. He would uh, talk to them, take time for them, and give them an answer. Never turned anyone away. I like that. Blind Bartimaeus, when he came to Jesus, uh, Jesus asked him, what do you want? And he said, oh, I received my sight. And he did. The leper came to Jesus and says, Lord, I know if thou, thou wilt, you can make me clean. And Jesus did. Uh, David had confidence in asking of God because he believed God would give an answer. New Testament teaches the same. Uh, Paul to the Ephesians says, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. And I love Hebrews chapter 4, where at the end of that chapter, we are encouraged, we are exhorted, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We just need to ask, and God will answer. So ask God for directions. The second thing we see from David is we need to know the character of God. In fact, we're, we're always to be students of God's character. And I think that's really going to be one of the joys of eternity is that we're, we're, we're going to get to study God's character. And it's going to be unhindered. Every day we're going to learn some new depth and experience of his character as we go through eternity. Uh, Paul, he laid aside all things for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ as he wrote to the Philippians. He prayed that uh, the believers in Ephesus and that us here today would know God's character, that we'd grow in knowledge in that area. Now, now, David knew this principle. He knew this truth. And his knowledge of God's character led to the insight that God will instruct his people. You look at verse 8 here in Psalm 25. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he will teach sinners in the way. I mean, why would we pray to a God if we can't trust him? If he isn't good, why bother? David affirms the trustworthiness of God. Notice verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. That's a profound statement. God is good. You know, a simple children's prayer. God is good. God is great. Let, let's thank him for our food. Well, you know, that simple prayer states two great truths. God is great. He is all-powerful. And He is good. And this word is used many times in the Old Testament uh, from Genesis 1 
when God saw his creation as good. Remember after each day? And God saw that it was good. And that's because he is good. And what he makes is good. Uh, this word means to be good in the widest sense. It speaks of beautiful, best, bountiful, cheerful, at ease, be in favor, gracious, kindness, loving, pleasant, precious. All those thoughts are in this word of good. And when we say God is good, we're saying he's all of these. He's good. And this is important. Good can only be defined by God. That is so important. What is good is defined by who and what God says. We have lost our way in today's world of definitions what is good. In fact, it's completely reversed today. So we can only define good by God and what it means. In the Gospel of Mark chapter 10, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. And in Mark 10 verse 17, we pick up his experience Mark 10, verse 17. And when he, Jesus, was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. See, Jesus defines it. God's the only one good. And, and notice he didn't decline that title, showing his deity. That he indeed is God. Rich young ruler kind of went over his head, missed it. And we see that God out of his goodness teaches sinners. And that's what David points out. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore will he teach sinners in the way. Jesus tried to instruct that young man. Asked him, well, you know the commandments? He said, yeah, I know this one, that one. I followed this one. Jesus said, you lack one thing. And he failed to follow the instructions. But goodness. So we need to know the character of God. We need to see that he is good, that we can come and seek him out, and he'll teach us. Now, as we go back to Psalm 25, uh, the, the next thing we need to do is we need to be meek. In verse 9, uh, David says, The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. R.K. Harrison, uh, he, he translates this verse. He says, He gives proper direction to the humble and reveals his plans to the lowly. You ever work with a know-it-all? You ever have a neighbor that's a know-it-all? Or maybe a family member. I mean, it seems like everybody has one to know it all. They just kind of drive you nuts, don't they? It's kind of great on your nerves. I mean, those, these guys, are, they're, they're everywhere. 
I remember one of the great, probably the great sermons that I, I heard or listened on a cassette tape. So that, that tells you how long ago it was. Uh, it was decades ago. But I don't remember the preacher's name. Uh, I think he's down in North Carolina, some probably little podunk Baptist church. But I remember the title of his sermon, God Uses Nobodies. Now I remember him talking about the fact that he says if, if you're a talented person, if you're a gifted athlete and, and, and a, a jock or, or a leader at school and uh, one of these type people, he says God will probably have a harder time using you. Because many times we look in the Bible, who does God use? He uses people that are humble, lowly, not in the spotlight. People that are basically nobodies. And that's the kind he takes and uses. The ordinary. Uh, you know, sometimes we think, well, I'm just ordinary. Well, that's good. God likes that. Uh, I think it's Abraham Lincoln said, God must love the ordinary person. He made so many of them. And he really did. Well, if we submit ourselves to God in meekness, he will teach us, give us instruction. And that's what verse 9 says. The meek will he guide in judgment. The meek will he teach his way. But if we're arrogant, God's going to be silent. That word meek in the Old Testament means humble, lowly. In the New Testament, it, it often describes a horse that's under control. It's creatures of great strength, yet under control. Meekness. Too often we see that word and we think of a wimp. Well, that guy's kind of meek, kind of a wimp. But meek people, God teaches and, and, and leads and he uses. But the proud, he, he's going to resist the proud. Moses in Numbers chapter 12, uh, it describes him. It says, now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. Isn't that interesting? Moses is described as meek. And yet God took Moses and would lead a uh, couple million of his people out in the exodus out of Egypt, and he would stand against Pharaoh. But Moses was described as a meek man. Jesus in Matthew's gospel says take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and lowly in heart do we hear that nothing wimpy about Jesus I am meek yeah, we don't hear that that I am message too often, do we? But Jesus said, I am meek. And he's not a wimp. It, no wimp gives up the glory of heaven. No wimp becomes one of us. No wimp lives a sinless life. 
No wimp goes to the cross and stays on it. No wimp walks out of the grave alive. No wimp can hold the keys of death and Hades. I am meek. Good fathers have that quality, like our Lord. A meekness, strength under control. Find direction, need to be obedient. Verse 10. David says, All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth unto such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. So, willingness to obey is really the first step towards spiritual understanding. Uh, Spurgeon says, This is a rule without exception. Obedience, so, so important. The obedient person, God, unfolds his way. His mercy and truth to the obedient. Uh, we're familiar with Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. But notice the condition. All things work together for good if we love God. And what reveals our love for God? Well, let's see what Jesus said. Turn with me to John chapter 14. Gospel of John chapter 14. In John 14, we're at the Last Supper. He, he's with his disciples. And Jesus is going to unfold this truth about his love and obedience. And it's interesting, this teaching does not take place until after Judas is gone. And in John 14, look at verse 21. He says to his disciples, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. All things work together for good for those that love God. And here's the key. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, does them, obeys them, guards them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father. And I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Jesus answered, said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words. And my Father will love him and will come unto him and, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings. Then we look in chapter 15, verse 9. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye my love. If you keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. Even as I, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And in verse 14, Ye are my friends 
If ye do whatsoever I command you. Obedience. Boy, miss that one. We just chuck everything out. So we need to be obedient to find God's instructions. I mean, why would we give instructions to somebody if they're not going to follow them? You know, I've done that with some people. You know, I'm not going to tell them because I know they're not going to listen. God will do the same with us. Be obedient. Then to find direction, we need to nurture a fear of God. Uh, this is pivotal. It opens a lot of doors. It, it, it's a gateway to insight. It, it changes how we live. Fear of God. Now, I've shared this before with you about my dog. Uh, choc chocolate Lab, Molly. She is kind of a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde uh, dog. I mean, when I'm around the house, she is a very good dog. When I get up in the morning, I'll run her outside and bring her back in. Then she'll just kind of lay there by my side while I have my coffee. When I step out the door and I'm gone, that dog changes. Sandy gets up. That dog don't listen to her. That dog will run around the house, get into stuff, go into the garbage can, one of the bathrooms, drag stuff out of there. Run around the island, run down the hall, jump on the bed, get up on the counter, see what's scrounging up there. That dog never does that when I'm there. In fact, I come home and say, you sure? That same dog? <laughs> what's the difference? Well, I put the fear of God in that dog. That dog knows if she does that and I'm there, she's going to pay. And she doesn't do that. Little dogs, that's a different story. <laughs> Won't tell you about that one. They kind of do what they want. Well, fear the Lord. Uh, look at what David says in verse 12. What man is he that feareth the Lord. Him shall he teach in the way that he shall choose. Uh, verse 14. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. And he will show them his covenant. And of course, remember Proverbs. Proverbs says uh, very clear, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So, you know, many times I think the fear of the Lord is played down today. And sometimes we'll hear, well, it's just respect. It's more than that. It's more than just reverence. It is fear of the Lord. And that comes when we encounter who God is and recognize His glory. In the Gospel of Mark, we find pictures of that experience. Now, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 4, just to look at a few of them. Verse 
But as the disciples and, and others begin to recognize who Jesus is, that he indeed is God, when, when glimpses are given that, uh, that reveal his glory, fear takes place. Uh, we see it in chapter 4, verse 41. After the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus gets up and just with a word commands and the storm is gone. Verse 41, it tells us, They feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They knew the answer. Chapter 5 of Mark, verse 33. Uh, the woman with the issue of blood. Uh, Mark tells us in that verse, But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told all the truth. But uh, she realized who Jesus was. That's why she went to him. In chapter 9 of Mark, during the transfiguration when the glory of Jesus begins to unfold, uh, verse 2 tells he was transfigured before them. And in verse 6, uh, you know, verse 5, Jesus says, well, it'd be good to stay here and we'll make tabernacles for you, Lord, and Moses and Elijah. And verse 6, for he, he knew not what to say, for they were sore afraid. Fearful. The transfiguration. And, and we see it in, at, in chapter 16 on the first Easter morning. Verse 8, chapter 16. Uh, the women come, they enter uh, the tomb. And the angel there speaks to them. Show him, they show that it is empty. They say he is risen, he's not here. They go and tell his disciples. And in verse 8, they went out quickly and fled from the sepulcher, for they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. They were fearful and realized uh, something spectacular had happened. Glory filled that empty tomb. And they begin to grasp a risen Lord. You see, when people witness the power of God, when they begin to see His glory unfolded, fear of God takes place. That's what happens. In fact, many times they think they're going to die. What happened to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos when he heard a mighty voice and he turned and saw the risen Lord in all His glory? He fell down as a dead man. Jesus put His hand on him. Lifted him up. What's, it, what, what's strange is that to us, the people of God, that is attractive. The fear of the Lord. 
it, it draws us. You think of the Israelites as they dwelled on Mount Sinai, and here was God's presence thundering and dark clouds and, and, and all his glory and his presence, and they had to keep their distance if they stepped over a bound. They get struck dead, but yet they didn't run off. They, they, they hung around there. Uh, Mark Galley, I like what he calls it. He calls it beautiful fear. We are strangely attracted to the one we dread. Fear of God. Now there's some blessings in that. You look at what David says. He tells us in verse 12, uh, the man that fears God, he'll be taught by God. That's the blessing. God confides in those who fear him, unfolds his ways. We'll also be safe and at peace in verse 13. His soul shall dwell at ease, his seed shall inherit the earth. Our children will be blessed. Fathers, the best way you can bless your children, fear God. See that in verse 13 also. His seed shall inherit the earth. He'll know God's secrets in verse 14. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. A Spurgeon calls it the friendship of the Lord. God will unfold his word to us. So one know God's instructions, gotta have fear of God. To know God's direction, wait on God. We see this truth early in the psalm, late in the psalm. Verse 3, Let none that wait on thee be ashamed. Let them be ashamed which transgress without cause. Verse 5, Lead me in thy truth and teach me, for thou art the God of my salvation. On thee do I wait all the day. Verse 21, let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait on thee. Want to know God's instructions? Patience. Waiting. Too often we feel God hasn't acted quick enough, and we take things into our own hands. But many times we just need to wait and wait and wait for God to move. Waiting on God. And we can be cheerful, certain knowing that it's not in vain. Because that's what David says in verse 3. Let none that wait on thee be ashamed. It's not in vain if you wait on God. And David was convinced it was worthy. Because in verse 5 he says, On thee do I wait all the day. And at the end of that psalm, verse 21, I wait on thee. We need to wait on 
the Lord in our service, in our, in our worship, in our trust, in, in, in everything, in prayer, we wait. Andrew Murray in his classic work, Waiting on God. On one of the little studies he has dealing with this very psalm, he ends it with a prayer. I want you to listen to his prayer. This, this is a good prayer for all of us. He says, Blessed Father, we humbly beseech thee. Let none that wait on thee be ashamed. No, not one. Some are weary and the time of waiting appears long. And some are feeble and scarcely know how to wait. And some are so entangled in the effort of their prayers and their work that they think they can find no time to wait continually. Father, teach us all how to wait. Teach us to think of each other and pray for each other. Teach us to think of thee, the God of all waiting ones. Father, let none that wait on thee be ashamed. For Jesus' sake, amen. Wow. Waiting on God. Bob, Linda, Laura, let me bring you back up. Do we need God's instructions? Well, a lot of things here we can do in our part. Looking at God's character. Asking Him. Being the servant in meekness and obedience. Waiting on Him. What is God desiring of our heart today? Let's stand as we sing, I surrender all. Altar's open, you can come. <laughs>